so discussing from the fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. And Krishna has spoken about the history of this of his teaching, this yoga, and brought up a question for Arjuna, so he's answering that question. Or he answered it, a question with regard to his omniscience and his eternality. <coughs> and having answered that, that I'm omniscient and my form is eternal, then the question may arise in Arjuna's mind as to, if you're omniscient and you're eternal, what are you doing in, in this world of ignorance and uh, in the ephemeral world of ignorance? <clears throat> you're out of place here. So why and when and why would you you come here? And so Krishna answers with two very famous uh, verses. He says, Yada yada hi dharmasya glanir bhavati bharata adyuttanam dharmasyam dharmasya tadatmanam srijamyaham paritranaya sadunam vinashaya chaduskritam dharmasam stapanartaya sambhavam yuge yuge. And these verses are uh, important. They can be understood in a number of different ways. Let me read the translations. Whenever a descendant of Bharat, Dharma is diminished and unrighteousness is on the rise at that time, I myself manifest for the protection of the saintly and the destruction of evildoers, as well as for the purpose of establishing Dharma, I manifest in every age. So yada yada. He says, whenever and wherever. This is the perhaps the broadest way to read the verse. You know, so when do you come? Whenever and, uh, and where and wherever I want. You know, you know. And this works well, of course, with Tadatmanam, Sridhamyaham, at that time, by my own will. He's already established in the previous verse that his, his form is eternal. <clears throat> so he's not taking uh, birth under the force of the uh, influence of karma like ordinary jivas, but by his own will. Sri Aham, I make myself uh, manifest. Where, whenever, and wherever, really he's saying, I want. And where I want corresponds with something else that's happening. Also, primarily we should understand this, that Krishna appears according to his will. And there may be different other reasons that seem to be the reason that he descends. But if we trace them out carefully, we'll see. Ultimately, it is only out of his own will. But that his will is very much tied to what? to the love of his devotees, the devotees' will. Sadhanam hridayam, sadhanam hridayam, aham. These are the sadhus in my hearts. Sadhus are in my heart, I'm in their hearts. We are one. So, we have to come to this in the course of discussing these verses. But, overall then, as I say, 
but of his own sweet will he comes. There's no force that he has to, that he's under. He's atmaram, right? He's self-satisfied. Nothing outside of himself. Of course, as we'll see, the devotees are not really outside of himself. As I said, they're they're one. And how are they one? Because his he envelops them, if you will, with the ingress of his. Swarup Shakti, Sudashatva Visheshatma, Prema Suryam comes like a ray of sun, of Prem, this bhava, made up of Sandini, Sambit, Latini. And then that devotee becomes Mahatmanas Tumamparta Daivim Prakriti Mashriti. We talked about this internal energy, this Antaranga Shakti, the Swarup Shakti of Krishna, by which his form manifests. This is the um, energy, if you will, the shakti under the influence of which his devotees are moving in this world. They're diving prakritim ashrita. They've taken shelter of prakriti that is divine. Prakriti means nature, so divine nature. That is the swarup shakti. <clears throat> so they are therefore not outside of himself because Krishna means along with the shakti. There's no meaning to Krishna without his shakti. We may talk of Brahman and there's not much to say about Shakti. But with the f- further manifestation of Shakti, this Brahman is then shining. That Br- Brahman is the great light, but with the, under, under the, if you will, under the influence of the Shakti, he shines that much brighter. Krishna is dancing hmm? under the influence of Radha's love for him. Chaitanya Charchamrita, he very beautifully describes himself through the pen of Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami as being Ami Guru Shisha Nata. Ami, Ami, Ami Shishya Guru Nata. Speaking to Radha, I am the disciple and you are my teacher in dancing. You know, Krishna is, is that God who Nechi was looking for when he said, if there's a God, he would be a dancer. And he's dancing under the influence of his own Surup Shakti for Radha, Krishna, Veda, Ved. They're one and different. The love of Radha corresponds with Krishna. Krishna could not show his forearm form as Narayan in the presence of Radha. Her love didn't allow that form to manifest. And correspondingly, what it means is that form of Krishna, two-armed, Shamsundha Swayam Bhagavan, in the fullest sense of the term, is that Krishna standing next to Radha that corresponds with her love. So, they say he doesn't go outside of himself. We'll go into that. We're it's sort of the higher end of how to look at these uh, verses. But on the lower end, hmm, then, a very general statement is being made here that's very important. That I appear, number one, of my own free will, whenever and wherever I want. It happens to correspond with a decline in, in, in righteousness. He says in the first verse, it also happens to correspond in a higher sense than with the necessity of my devotees, paritranaya, sadhanam, to give protection to the devotees, to establish dharma, and to protect my devotees. So, <coughs> in the broadest sense, Bhaktivinotakur gave a nice um, commentary on this, where in a kind of a saragrahi of mood, saragrahi means, sar means essence, so grahisu who's carrying the essence as opposed to Bharabhagi, who carries the burden only of the externals of uh, that demark, for example, our sect from another sect and so forth. And 
and um, that sometimes people identify with as the whole, as the substance rather than the form that it, that substance expresses itself in. And then they're at odds with other sects and so forth, where their tilak a little different, or whatever may be the case. So we shouldn't we should try not to be burdened by such lesser conceptions and identify with this essence of the teaching. And in that spirit, Bhaktivinotaka wrote on these verses, on, on the first verse here, of that, that he goes anywhere. That means, he says, it doesn't mean that he only comes in India. He goes to other lands also, even outside of the you know, the land of Bharat and the Varnashram and so forth. That's that's a good part of the subject of the Gita here when we talk about uh, performing um, uh, one's karma for the satisfaction of Bhagavan with detachment from the fruits. It's really talking about the karma or activities enjoined in the scripture. So beyond those lands, <coughs> so to speak, outside of Bharat, where there, we know there are so many incarnations, so many descents, so many avataras of, uh, of, uh, of, of the Godhead, he says, he also appears in some shaktivesha form, some empowered form, to uplift the people in those lands according to their understanding of the Dharma, which ultimately comes to bhakti, and there's a semblance of it here, there, and everywhere, because it is the jaiva dharma. It is the actual, real, natural function of the living entity in its fullest, in its uh, highest uh, potential. Its dharma by nature is to serve, and of course it it reaches its fullness in in service to Sri Krishna and so forth. But it's, um, he wants to say it's it's, uh, natural in human society for the to become interested in doing the right thing, to put it in the broadest sense. And when we do, when we become sincere, we want to do the right thing, and so then we get some reciprocation, he's saying. There's, this is the dynamic. Therefore, would you Pajita much like to translate from the sixth chanto, sixth chapter, I should say, of the Gita, Nahikali when Arjun had a question that if I go for this yoga that you're talking about and I forego the Dharma, then if I'm not successful, I will have disobeyed the Dharma to one extent or another and foregone my duties according to Varnashram. So I'll be lost in that realm. And if I'm not successful in yoga, which doesn't sound really easy from the way you're describing it, then I'll be nowhere. And very, very, very affectionately, Krishna has says to him, it's very affectionate words. It's like, oh, my dear son, don't think like that. Jiddu Maharaj gave a rendering, like paraphrasing like this. Sincerity is invincible. Your sincere truth, like attracts like. So much as we're truthful, honest, sincere, so then we're going to attract some reciprocation. You know the famous story of Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasri Thakur who was publishing a daily magazine, Gaudiya Prakash, Nadia Prakash. And somebody, a political figure, said, how can you publish a magazine every day about God? It's a little over the top. And uh, he said, well, you know, there's two, three magazines, newspapers, I should say, in every major city. 
And it's all giving news about the ekapad vibhuti, the material world, which is figuratively said to be one quarter of the three quarter or greater expanse of the four quarters, three quarters being the paraviyom, the spiritual sky, the, uh, the majority. So in the minority world, in the, in the prison, if you will, as it's called, you've got all these newspapers about what's going on in here. He said, we could publish a newspaper at every minute about the news from there. He said, the only problem is no customers, not enough customers. So as much as there is interest, there's no shortage on, on, on Bhagavan's part, on the Godhead's part to reciprocate. And so in a very general sense, you know, we, all, we are all here. So we set out, we have some sincerity, we want to know the truth, we want to do the right thing and so forth. And then to what extent the measure of our sincerity, we'll come in touch with it. And according to the measure of our sincerity, we'll be able to understand that we've come in touch with it. And unfortunately, sometimes what happens is we come in touch with it and we can understand it, but we didn't know it would be as alive as it is. <laughs> And that they would, so you want the truth? Well, here it is. And this is what's, what I'm asking of you. And so we sh- those are real important turning points then in our life. On every level of our practice, we'll encounter this. And just like it said, if we take the holy name of Krishna, then there's an, one of the fences, fences is the tenth offense. It says that you... Uh, continue on in the bodily concept of life despite chanting and hearing so many instructions about it. It means that you chant, the name is going to reveal himself. He's going to take you where you need to be. He's going to show you what you need to do. You know, when you pray, you know what you you know what to do. <laughs> it's not hard to figure out, you know. If you don't pray, then you can let your mind figure, you know, come up with so many reasons. Arjuna had so many reasons in the Bhagavad Gita in the first chapter for not following Krishna and so forth that he, that he put forward. But so, we pray, we're sincere, and it becomes apparent what we should do, and it's daunting. It's a daunting task. This is not for the faint-hearted. This is uh, it's, uh, it's for rare few people who ready to turn their back on, on the material world. And of course, join the majority, and that's what we learn. We learn by proper connection to the Guru Parampara. We're connected with all these great souls and so forth. We can then better understand their teaching and so they, they all, all of their mercy comes to us through proper connection with the Guru Parampara. And we get connection with that Paravyam, the whole three quarters, if you will. Yeah, so it's perhaps imperceivable to others, but there's a sense and it's a profound, it's tangible in those who walk this course and so forth and are courageous enough that <clears throat> there's firm ground on the other side. Usually it will appear like it sounds good, but it's kind of an invisible, you know, it sounds good, it's a, it's kind of a promise, it, you know, okay, but, but here I've got something tangible to hold on to, so. And that's, you know, a theory. But the, the fact of the matter is, of course, what we're hanging on to is nothing. That's, 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 that's a bad theory, if anything, that we have something at all. And that means anything within ourselves that constitutes our material resources, not just our money, our physical energy, but our intelligence, our abilities, and so forth. Mama Maya, Duratya, Krishna says, Gita, forget it. 
up against my Maya, there's, there's absolutely no chance. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are, how strong you are, how crafty you are, how capable, how wealthy you are, and so forth. No chance. We go to the other side by help, by his grace. And this is what he says. I come, I give my grace, I reciprocate. Everybody doesn't take advantage, but I come anyway. And where? Whenever, wherever, at any time. By my own will, I manifest. You cannot make me manifest. It's a totally descending idea. It's uh, avaroha panta. It comes from up to down. If God wants us to know, we can know. Otherwise, it's not possible. I've given the example before of the UFOs, right? You know, the guy goes into the backyard and he sees a UFO, and so he wants to tell his friends, and as soon as they come, of course, there's no UFO, so... He starts to think, maybe I'm crazy, maybe not, but I'm sure I saw that. He can't convince anybody. So Then he finds out there are other people who say they've seen too, so he has to connect with them. And then he joins the UFO Society, and and they all research the matter you know, continually and have their internet forums and so forth, and everybody thinks they're crazy, of course. <coughs> One day, I guess they all get beamed up. <laughs> so this is our, our aspiration, that we may be beamed up. So, you know, it comes, as I say, we, we will get inspiration and we will know and then we will rationalize to make a wonderful thing out to be less than what it is. That's the nature of our conditioning. You hear a great uh, talk by a sadhu, you get very inspired and he made a point that really pertains to you, for example, and you carry that, you know, and then... Given a little time, a little separation, when you go back home, the world comes on, <laughs> and you, well, it, was, it was good, but but anyway, there are the, you know, and all of this, it fades. So the secret of what what Prabhupada called submissive hearing, which is what's called for on our part, if you really want to understand the meaning of this, you know, sub, to submissively hear from the parampara and so forth, is that in the full sense of the term, when you hear it and you know it's truth, when it, when it, when the sadhu speaks and hits home. Home is in the heart. He touches that place and you know that's true. Then you have to incorporate that into your life. That becomes then a building block for an actual spiritual life. So and for home going, a home knowing person is essential. So in a broader sense, this verse can be referring to that kind of person, a devotee, an empowered devotee who comes and establishes Dharma and you know this place, that place, anywhere, or in the context of bhakti as well. <clears throat> this is the broader kind of understanding. <clears throat> and Bhakti Vinotakar has written something um, about that in a very non-sectarian pen um, that he was uh, very much uh, characterized his his um, his presentation. And of course, we're fortunate to be in his <coughs> spiritual lineage. And then on another level, these verses speak to us about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. In particular. In fact, they're cited in Chaitanya Charitamrita, and there aren't many Gita slokas chanted, uh, cited in Chaitanya Charitamrita. This is cited in the third chapter, along with some verses from the previous chapter. Whatever a great man does, others follow, and so forth. Where Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami is, Krishna, Brijananda is speaking through his. His, his pen in the pages of Chaitanya Charitamrita and talking about the reason for his descent. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, I should say, uh, is talking 
Krishna is talking about the reason for his descent in terms of his appearance as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the external reason to give Brajabhakti to people, the opportunity to come close to him. He says, I'm not very much, I'm bored by this reverential love. It doesn't really excite me, so let the world become excited by knowing me as I am and having the opportunity to join my inner circle. I come. And in order to give that, I have to personally come. Not just anybody can do that. Not just another empowered person can do that. Or even another avatar can't do that. I'll have to come myself if I'm going to open the gates to Goloka, to the people. That's my domain. And my other avatars cannot. <coughs> so the verses, excuse me, these two verses are cited in that connection in Chaitanya Charitamrita. And also the words here, in the second verse, yuge, yuge, sambhavami, yuge, yuge, means I manifest yuga after yuga. It may be taken as a reference to, and he's speaking about establishing dharma, so what kind of avatar comes yuga after yuga to establish dharma? That's called the yuga avatar. So it's an important verse in this regard because there's question, and understandably so, given the nature of his descent and person, as to whether or not there is an avatar in the Kali Yuga for the Yuga to establish the Yuga Dharma. I mean, you couldn't find a, practically a more learned person in India than Sarvabhama Bhattacharya. As I've said many times, he's one of the most, he's probably the most famous logician in Indian history, and his name is mentioned in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Also, the great Sarvabhama Bhattacharya, who hailed from Bengal, who knew the grandfather of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was a contemporary of his grandfather and knew therefore Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's father, Jagannath Mishra, who was the son of his friend and had gone to Puri and was uh, was teaching there. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came there and he exhibited Mahabhav in the temple. He passed out seeing Lord Jagannath and Sarvoma took him to his home and cared for him and so forth. And then uh, he was attracted to the young man. He was only 25 years old. So some of you are only 25 years old or less, or you know, we all know what it means to be 25. It's pretty young. We don't know if we're only 25. <laughs> you get older, you know what it means. We're pretty young. <clears throat> but <clears throat> he was uh, captivated, the wise and elderly Sarvabhoma who cared for him, but he was sober and he couldn't be carried away by the emotionalism, as he saw it, of his devotees, Chaitanya's devotees who told him that he's Bhagwan, And one of the things that Sarabhama replied is, there is no Yuga avatar in Kali Yuga. Therefore his name, one of the names of God is Triyuga, which means he only appears in three Yugas. So this is an example perhaps of the learning of Sarabhama, which was oceanic, huge. He used to teach sannyasis in logic, the Vedanta is called Nyaya Shastra. It's kind of the logic of the Shastra. It shows the concordance. It's his intent, those sutras, of how all the Upanishads are saying the same thing, what they're coming to, what the purport is, and so forth. Because it's kind of a jungle of sounds that seem to go in many different directions. It's the most voluminous body of literature on earth, and uh, it's religious by nature. And there's a lot of empl- employing of metaphor and poetry and so forth, and uh, 
And so what does it all mean? Is it all really saying one thing? And that's what the Vedanta Sutras is meant to assert. Yes, and this is what it's saying. And of course, then there are different commentaries on it. So he would educate young sannyasis in the Vedanta so that they wouldn't be carried away by the senses, by the mind, by emotions, by the world, and so forth. Strengthen their resolve with, with logic and understanding. But probably what he didn't know, and he came to know later on, was that Srimad Bhagavatam, in the opinion of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, is a natural commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. And this is the final word, and this is the hub around which everything should revolve, more so than Vedanta Sutra, because Vedanta Sutra is not as explicit it was compiled by Vyas for the purpose that I mentioned. But afterwards he compiled the Bhagavatam. <clears throat> and it is said, Artvayam Brahmasutranam, Guru Purana, that Srimad Bhagavatam is this commentary on the Vedanta Sutras. And you can show for every sutra in Vyasa's Vedanta discourse, every sutra you can show a verse from Bhagavatam that's explaining it. <coughs> for it would be an interesting commentary to write. Rinaranya suggested it, and I made that point. Some thought about it a little bit in the last couple of days. But in Bhagavatam, at any rate, <coughs> this is what Mahaprabhu embraced. So his devotees were more familiar with that. He would hear every morning, he would go, rise, go to the Ganges and bathe, come back to the house of, of Sachi, and there there would be. Uh, an offering made and a Bhagavatam recitation by Gadadhar Pandit. Every morning they have the Bhagavat discourse. Later in Puri, when Gadadhar Pandit came with him there from Totagopinath temple, Gadadhar would l- lecture Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Srimad Bhagavatam. We can just, we should aspire. Let me enter the Bhagavatam class of Gadadhar Pandit in Nadia or in Puri and from there to enter into Nadia and hear the Srimad Bhagavatam from Gadadhar Pandit whose tears drenched the pages of the book to the extent that when Srinivasa Charger came, I think it was him, the book had all been, the pages had been washed away in Puri. So, Mahaprabhu, this was his heart, Srimad Bhagavatam. It's called Srimad Bhagavatam. Srimad Bhagavatam. Bhagavatam means the Lord, and Srimad means beautiful. So, Srimad means Bhagavan Krishna under the influence of Radha when he becomes most beautiful. This is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's conception. So this was a new religion, if you will. It was It's the oldest religion in a sense, but it wasn't understood in this way, and Sarvabhoma didn't understand it in that way. So when he heard what he considered the emotionalism of Gopinath and others about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he didn't accept it. He thought he was a great sadhu and everything, but I mean, he's not God. And after all, Triyuga, this is one of his names. In Vishnu Sahasranam, thousand names of Vishnu, this is one of his name, Triyuga, so he doesn't appear in Kali Yuga. But Bhagavatam says about Triyuga in the seventh skanda, seventh canto, Prahlad speaking, he says, You appear in three yugas, but in but in the fourth yuga you appear in a covered way. Kalo, what is it? Uh, Chana Kalo. Chana means covered. In Kali Yuga you come in a covered co- covert form. You see how these Disciples of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Sanatana, Shijiva Goswami. Jiva Goswami, Sanatana Goswami was the original commentator on Bhagavatam. There was no one more learned than Sanatana Goswami on Bhagavatam. You know the story of him in his home. He was the governor, practically speaking, he was the governor of Bengal because when the governor went away, he would govern 
Uh, he was very highly situated in the government, but he he became influenced by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He wrote him and Rup Goswami a letter to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. We want to come and join you. And Mahaprabhu wrote them back a very cryptic note. It said, "Just like a wife who develops love for a paramour, performs her duties at home very nicely, so that that their husband will not suspect." You should conduct yourself in this way, with the implication being that when you get an opening, then you, you go for it. So don't let the governor know. That'll be politically, you know, dangerous. He'll have off with your head and so forth. But keep that fire, you know, raging within, and opportunity will come. So he anyway, he left the court and he surrounded himself with Brahmins and pundits to discuss Srimad Bhagavatam. There we should like to enter also into the discussion of Srimad Bhagavatam on the part of, uh, conducted by Sanatana Vasami. And he's the seminal commentator. And see how he picked out this verse in the seventh canto and he related it to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Then we go to the eleventh canto, fifth chapter. Karabhajana Muni begins to speak about the avatars and he says in the opening uh, verse, I think the twentieth verse of that chapter, 11.520, the opening part to the description of the Yuga avatars, he says, Keshava appears in, in Krita, means uh, Satya, Dwarpa, Treta, and Kali Yuga. Hmm? Let me speak about their qualities and forms and so forth. And so we have another reference where it says there he's a four appearances in all four. He comes in the Kali Yuga, in other words. And then, of course, he goes on and explains very clearly the Satya Yuga Avatar, color, and what he'll do, and then the Treta Yuga Avatar, and the Dwarpa Yuga Avatar, and then he comes to the verse that nobody understood until Sanatana Goswami looked at it. And with his bhava and realization, they just spoke to him. Well, this is obviously about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And if you read that verse, in the commentary of Sanatana Goswami, you think, how could anybody think otherwise? And, you know, the Madhva Sampradaya, the Ramanuja Sampradaya, Embarka Sampradaya, all these Sampradayas were, were around, the Sri Sampradaya, uh, for a long time. And they never understood the verse in that way. And the two subsequent verses also then describe the qualities of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Very insightful. So here is another reference then. He comes in every yuga to establish Dharma. So there must be a Kali Yuga avatar. And his qualities are described. Krishna Varnam Tasa Krishnam. Sangu Pangasta Parshadam, Yagnaisan Kitana Praya, Yujanti Sumesa, Deyam Sada, Puribhavnam Vishtadoham, Tirtaspadam, Shivanichinutam Sadanyam, Pityatiham Panatapalapalabhripotam, Vande Mahapurushate, Charanadamindam, Tyaktavasudu, Sarisaripsatasrajalak, and all these so really nice uh, verses from Bhagavatam. And people sometimes in Gaudi Sampradaya they quote many verses from many different scriptures to establish that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was God. And then many of those scriptures, those verses aren't found in the, in the manuscripts. So people think, you're just kind of interpolating and making that up. And there may be some of that going on by some people. Who knows who? But this is Bhagavatam. This is the bedrock here, what we're quoting from. It doesn't... And the verses are in every edition. They're very, very prominent verses. But see how important it is, then. Another side note it is to have the... Hear the book from the sadhu. Sridharmarsh used to like to say the scripture is a passive agent of divinity, but the sadhu is an active agent. He brings the scripture to life and brings out new meanings and relevant meanings to us that we couldn't otherwise ourselves. And this book can't ask you, so, do you understand? 
And we see many people read it and really misunderstand it. Means they need guidance to understand it properly. So in every yuga he comes. That means in Kali Yuga he also comes. In the Kali Yuga he comes as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And then lastly, here, Krishna says that he comes, and I mentioned this in the beginning, to protect his devotees. Uh, he comes of his own will, and his own will is one with that of his devotees. He is a dancing puppet in the hands of the Brajbasis. That's what Krishna means. Brahman, the Absolute, as others know him, Narayan, the, the four-handed Godhead, has become a, a, a child in the hand and in the heart of Malia Shoda. He's willing to take on, take on that, that uh, to, to be her son. He's become the friend of Sridham, the lover of, of Radha and so forth. It means he's, he's controlled by them. He's forgotten the spiritual world, what to speak of the material world. Which he's in control of, and so forth, and so on. So, Paritranaya Sadhanam, this is why he comes. And when we say that he, this, the primary reason that he comes to protect his devotees, it doesn't mean he comes for any external reason, because they are, devotee means, in the fullest sense, under the influence of his Surup Shakti. So he's Atmaram, he stays within himself. He takes pleasure in himself, he doesn't take pleasure outside of himself. He takes pleasure in his relationship with his devotees. But his devotees means who are under the influence of his Swarup Shakti, his own internal energy. So, in the highest sense, then, we, we understand the appearance of Krishna, per se, in the world in relation to this. Because why? Devotees of Krishna who want to enter into Goloka and have one of these relationships with him that he comes to make available, how will they do that? If you want love of God, if you want liberation and love of God, and you, in, in the Bhagavatam, we find Narada died. Narada, Narada got Narada left the world and went to Bhakuntha. This is Vaidhi Bhakti. That you can do. Krishna here says he kills the demons too, you know, on the side. So they also, they, can, they die, they, and their subtle bodies destroyed, and then they get some love for him as a result, and they can go to Vaikuntha. It's possible. Or they can get Sayuja Mukti. Or Sarupi Mukti they can get, Sayuja Mukti they can get. So that's possible. But if you want to enter into Krishna's family, you have to take an extra birth in this world. You cannot go from here to there. You have to go, you have, because you will develop a Stahibhav, like friendship or uh, conjugal love for Krishna. But it has to be intensified in order to participate in, in, in the Brajalila. The intensification is, is all under the chapter of the Stai Prakarana, chapter on Stai Bhav in Ujjwal Nimani. Sneha, Man, Pranai, Rag, Anurag, Bhav, Mahabhav. According to your relationship as a servant of Krishna, as a friend of Krishna, as a lover, parent, and so forth, this stahibhav, dominant emotion, is going to intensify when it comes to conjugal love up to Mahabhav, or the sakyarasa of the Priyanarmas up to Mahabhav, and so forth. So this intensification requires on-site, so to speak, association with those who have that. So Krishna 
is said to appear in the material world and perform his lila once in the day of Brahma, the idea is. And that's also how rare this is. But some devotees from wherever, they develop such longing for Krishna. They, in other words, they attain surup siddhi. It means that they've they develop love for Krishna and they're longing for Krishna's separation, for Krishna in separation. He cannot bear their separation. They cannot bear his separation. He hears their prayers for sure, as we discussed the other night. And so he appears in the world and then they take birth wherever he appears. So to protect his devotees, to protect them from what? That's the question. What do devotees need to be protected from? They're the most powerful people in the world. What can harm them? They need to be protected from the pain of their separation from Krishna, the longing that they cannot bear any longer, that they cannot uh, have his uh, direct uh, association. So to mitigate that, the dark night of the soul, if you will, he comes in the world and paritranaya sadhunam reveals himself to them in his lila. They participate in that. And then when the lila becomes unmanifest, they go from what's called surupsidi to vastusidi and to nukalok. So, any question? Yes. You were saying that, uh, you you mentioned that Krishna definitely hears our prayers. Mm -hmm. So I've heard a lot of different uh, interpretations on how to pray to Krishna or who to pray to. And uh, wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, the most effective way to, to pray. Well, yeah. I mean, the most effective way, the heart of it is to be sincere. Everything else will fall in place. Then there are formalities also that, that, that um, can be put in place, which will make it that much more effective. But at the heart of the whole thing, it's not a process or a formula about that. Uh, it said, Bhavagrahi Janardana. This is a saying about Krishna. That he accepts the, the feeling, the sentiment. This is what he's, that guy told the story the other day. He ate the peels and she was throwing away the bananas. Vidura's wife and offering the peels and Krishna was eating the peels. So there's an instance where formally things were not in, in, in order, but the substance, the feeling, the sincerity, the bhakti was there. So this is the main thing. You may pronounce the words wrong, but if your heart is in the right place, Krishna will hear them and say, I think you meant that. Is that what you meant to say? So that's the most important thing. And of course, if we are sincere, then we'll ask a question like that because we want to do it right too, right? In form. <laughs> so you got the first part there <laughs> in place to an extent. So as far as the form goes, well, you know, there are, there are different ways to pray. And there are different, two basic kinds of prayer also. There's, there's prayers of submission and there's prayers of longing. The prayers of submission are more appropriate and um, applicable to the stage of sadhana bhakti, up to asakti. You know the different stages of bhakti? We go through shraddha, faith, we involve sadhu sangha, and then we associate with like-minded people. In the context of the sadhu sangha, we find our guru, one sadhu who stands out, and so forth, in 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 <coughs> precept and an example. And then we 
embark in a systematic way on the path under his guidance. That's called bhajana kriya. So that we, we, we're going kind of in a general way, and then when we, when we meet the sadhu, we know this person is good for me. My interest lies here. You know, I should catch, catch on to this. Then he or she teaches us in a systematic way. That's called bhajana kriya. In the context of bhajana kriya, all these unwanted things start to come out. That's, that person is you know, turning up the heat, so to speak. And like when you make ghee from butter, then you know the impurities they come to the top and they come out. Without that, you won't get that. Those those won't come out. That's sure. And so, when they come out, we call that an art niriti. That the principal nartas are gone, and then one's practice becomes nishta, steady. And steady practice, then without distraction, then one gets ruchi, a taste. And from ruchi, one gets attachment. Ruchi means one has a taste for bhakti. And then asakti comes, and we have an attachment for the object of bhakti. And then you graduate from, from sadhana bhakti, and you enter into bhava bhakti. So in sadhana bhakti, the nature of the prayers are submission, like, I want to surrender, help me to surrender, help me to control my mind, you know, that I can serve you better, and these kind of things. And you more readily you know, think along those lines in that stage. In bhava bhakti... All that is in place. One is a Sharanagata, he's surrendered, and, and now he's got Bob some feelings, so his prayers are longing, longing to associate with Krishna, longing to enter the Leela in a particular way, and so forth. Now there's going to be always a little bit of overlapping. There's going to be some longing also in Sadhana Bhakti. And it's not that the Bhava Bhaktas aren't submissive or surrendered, and you don't hear them sometimes offer prayers of submission, but this basically characterizes the two Divisions. Jiva Goswami has written about this in his commentary in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. So that's another way to think about it. And then I think there are other there are other ways to look at praying also. One way that's very powerful is you take the prayers of great devotees and you recite those prayers from the Bhagavatam. There are different stutis in the Bhagavatam, the prayers of Indra, you know, there's the prayers of Brahma and uh, and so for the devotees make and, and others and Shiva and so forth and, and um, the Nagaputnis and, uh, and so on and one can commit them to memory and and offer them and those, those will be very powerful because these are prayers that were accepted we know that mm-hmm. they have power and they're correct in terms of Siddhanta and so forth Srup Damara Goswami was the secretary of Mahabhu if anyone wanted to come and offer a poem or a praise or something it had to go through him and he would check it to see if it was correct in terms of Siddhanta. Even if the even if the substance was their heart was in the right place, if it was wrong according to Siddhanta, he wouldn't offer it to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. We sent it back to be rewritten. Or if there was some if it wasn't correct according to the parameters of rasa, means uh, like proper poetry, sentiment, feeling, and so forth. So one thing we know about the great devotees' prayers is they're right. You know, they're correct form, and they have power. They've already, you know, they're enshrined in the texts and so forth. They have worked, <laughs> and Krishna's accepted them. So that's another way to pray. And then, you know, then, then we may make a prayer ourselves. We may manufacture or manifest a prayer. And the general format for that is this, that we make a prayer. Like sometimes somebody say, Oh, Marj, if you could... Pray for me, you know, 
you know, I'm losing my house, and if I don't, if I don't get a job, you know, maybe you could put a word in for me. I'm thinking, okay, there could be better things to be asked for, but sometimes, you know, one may be disposed to do that in some way, but not in the way that it will be any, place of any imposition upon the Lord. So you make a prayer and you say, "Oh, my dear Nityananda Prabhu, you are such and such. You are." You, you, oh, Nitananda Prabhu, you made such an effort to establish that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was Patita Pavana by delivering Jagai and Madai. Therefore, you are the Patita Pavana in the fullest sense of the term, for deliverer of the fallen. No one is more kind to the fallen souls than you, such is your position. I, I place my head at your feet, I'm sold out there. Hmm? This first part of the prayer. The deity whom you approach, you glorify. This is how you pray. You glorify the deity. You say something that you've heard and you make it sincere and accurate and you make a glorification of him. Then you state your own position. And my position is, well, if I was to say I was the most fallen, I would make myself more important than I am. Um, I'm destitute and in need of your help and, and so forth. I've come in the full of devotees and I only only offend them practically. I make a fool of myself. I don't know which way to turn, what's right or wrong. I I know that, you know, your grace is infinite, but my position is I need to be forced and dragged, you know, to your uh, to um, become attached to your, your servants and so forth. So you, you mention your own position. And then you make a prayer. What is your request? Therefore, your position is this, mine is this, and if it pleases you to do this, like someone might ask me, like guy said, so if it pleases you, this person is not, my position is this, I'm going to add if I'm praying for somebody else, and his position is this. And it's your business to do whatever you want, but he is your devotee. He has desires. He has material desires. He's a Sakama Bhakta. And I know you accept Sakama Bhaktas and help them overcome their desires, and you do it very expertly, so... He's sent this desire to me. I'm letting you know about it. You know, you 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 out with it, but um, you know, something like that. So anyway, the basic format is you glorify the deity, and then state his position. Then you state your own. And then you make your request. And uh, so, oh, Nityananda, so please send me send me good good guidance. Help me to do this or that. Does that help? That's the basic format. Any other question? Yes. Guru Maharaj mentioned that like Krishna descends for the devotees. That's like the main reason. What about other avatars? Do they come for the, you know, because there's a discrepancy in the world or something like that? Or are all the Vishnu avatars come for their devotees? Yeah, they also come for their devotees. But it's more so in the case of Krishna. He's more controlled by his devotees than anybody else. Others are not as controlled Therefore, there's a distinction made between Krishna in Vrindavan, even, and Krishna in Mathura and Dwarka. What to speak then between Krishna and other avatars? It's said that in Vrindavan, when Krishna killed demons, it was the Vishnu in him that killed the demons. It was the Vishnu in him that killed Putana and the Krishna who gave her Vatsalya Rasa. <laughs> so... Yes, ma'am. Well, is it correct that there are an infinite number of souls who are eternally conditioned? 
yeah, and they'll all be liberated. <laughs> Eternally conditioned means that their conditioning has no beginning in time. It doesn't mean that they can never get liberated, obviously. Well, yeah, I was thinking that in the Gita, you know, it says that there's no uh, souls are created. And so, so I was thinking about the implications of that. And, um, and if the material world is eternal and there's eternally conditioned souls in the material world, then there must be some souls that are eternally conditioned. I think you're trying to put logic on something that's beyond logic. The very idea of infinite number of souls, it um, it defies logic. Or you're conditioned since time without beginning. But anyway, the teaching is that there are an infinite number of souls in the material world. Because people suddenly make an argument, well, if all the souls are liberated, then what? You know, who will be left? Yeah. Mahaprabhu made a statement that when um, Vasudeva leper who became his devotee wanted to deliver all the souls in the world before himself going back to God and Mahaprabhu said well if one she-goat is lost from a, from a herd what will be the loss if one universe is liberated then so you know so, so it's an eternal kind of presence some people do teach some Vaishnavas do teach that some souls will remain in the material world forever According to Bhagavad Gita, there are a particular interpretation of uh, the, uh, I believe, the 16th chapter where the divine and the demonic are described. Krishna says again and again, I put them in the wombs of, to remain in the world. But we have a slightly different take on it. So if, if that's not the case, it seems that some souls have to be somewhat created. Souls are to be thought of as eternal, with no origin, because, well, like sparks in the fire. So you can look at it like that. They're in the fire. They may come out of the fire at a certain time, but they're in the fire. No, not created, but you could say they're eternally manifesting. Like Vishnu's eternally manifest, Mahavishnu, eternally manifesting souls. So then it's definite definitively the case that there are not some souls who are eternally conditioned. What do you mean by eternally conditioned? Yeah, they're all eternally conditioned, but they can overcome it. You mean without being able to overcome it? Eternally conditioned means they're never going to not be conditioned. That's not what it means. No. The term eternally conditioned means they're conditioned from a time without beginning, but not that they can't ever be liberated. Okay, well, I, yeah. I mean, I Right. Anything else? Simon Bhagavad Gita, Gita.